You're listening to Civic from the San Francisco Public Press. On this edition, we're talking to restaurant owners on surviving the pandemic and the road ahead. Chinatown was the first to be hit with the pandemic. I mean, even starting early January 2020, we've noticed a huge decline in um, foot traffic here. A lot of it had to do with misconceptions of the virus, um, a lot of xenophobia, and people just avoiding Asian communities. This is why so many places have taken the option of closing because they're doing, you know, simple arithmetic saying, okay, I have to pay 20 grand a month in fixed costs. I'm making 10. I mean, this can only last for so long because again, you, we don't know when this is going to be over. I'm Sonia Paul, in for Laura Wenis, and this is Civic. It's been just over a year since San Francisco's first shelter-in-place order, and just over a year since restaurants and bars in the city had to close their doors to the public. As some restaurants have shut down for good, others have been through a roller coaster, with staff layoffs, managing expenses while making little, if any, money, and trying to pivot to survive. And meanwhile, food support programs have cropped up to try to help both restaurant workers and those facing food insecurity. Take the SF New Deal, a nonprofit founded last March with a $1 million investment from the founder of Twitch. We'll be examining the sustainability of this program in a three-part series. In our first episode of the series today, we're talking to two restaurant owners about what it's been like the past year, what they can say about participating in the SF New Deal, and where they think their businesses and the restaurant industry are heading now. Hey, long time no see, how are you? I'm okay, thanks for letting me come. Hey. Yeah, of course. Brian Fernando is the chef and owner of 1601 Bar and Kitchen, a casual fine dining restaurant in Western Soma. The restaurant typically serves Sri Lankan-inspired food, utilizing ingredients you'd find in local markets. Before the pandemic, the restaurant had six servers. They were all working at the restaurant at night on top of their day jobs, so the process of letting them go wasn't as bad as it could have been. The only people currently on staff now are Fernando, his wife, and one cook, who initially started at the restaurant five years ago as a dishwasher. Fernando says that neither transitioning to takeout nor setting up outdoor dining were viable options for his business. It was always a destination restaurant where people paid for the atmosphere on top of the cuisine. And trying to recreate that fine dining experience with takeout is tough because that's not what customers typically associate with this food. And he never considered outdoor dining. The neighborhood has a lot of problems with graffiti, and he didn't feel it would be the safest environment for diners. It was around mid-March of last year, when customers started canceling their reservations, that it started to dawn on them that things were going to shut down. It was a topic of conversation for other restaurants and bars in the neighborhood, too. Um, so we went here to Bar Agricole, which, or used the former restaurant known as Bar Agricole, which was one of our favorite spots in the neighborhood to grab a drink. Um, and we were you know, asking them what they were going to do. Um, and the bartenders were like, oh, I mean, it's, it's so slow. Like, we don't, we don't know what's going on. We don't know what, you know, what, what we're going to do. This was in the middle of the week, like Wednesday, one of the days where we decided to close. Then it was slow the next couple days. I remember the Saturday night before we shut down was really busy for some reason. Um, 
And then that same night, we're like, okay, let's go grab a drink at Bar Agricole. We get there, there's a sign on the door and said that they had shut down. Um, and we hadn't talked to any of the bartenders after between our first and second visit that week. Um, and then I was um, under the impression that it was just sort of like a, like a brief thing. This was before the city imposed their mandates. But then it turned out that they, you know, they sort of preemptively shut their business down um, before um, all of the shelter-in-place uh, city-mandated city shutdowns happened. And then um, we were sort of in limbo as of what to do because it's like we weren't making, the business wasn't making any money. Basically, the month of March, we were just, the, we were super slow. There were some, like, spotty, busy nights, but this was at the time where... Um, just the, I feel like the unknowns with regarding like COVID really, really hurt the restaurants as far as like people weren't going out. They were unsure of what was going on. And there was never really a clear um, sort of guidance from the powers that be as to what, how to comport yourself, right? They were saying, oh, you know, stay at home. It's okay to go out, but you know, don't, if you're feeling sick, don't go out. But so, you know, there was all these kind of mixed messaging going around. Um, and I was talking, actually, um, a Sri Lankan buddy of mine who um, I know through Jen. I know you um, know Jen Samuel. So I, I know we kind of grew up, all grew up together, Sri Lankan kids. who He works as an, as an epidemiologist. Um, so I was talking with him while this is going on, just sort of getting a um sort of an insider view as to what you know the um scientists and stuff are thinking regarding the pandemic um and he was out and he was basically pushing me to close um for a couple weeks before this happened saying that it's not going to get you know it's not going to get any better like you know hasn't really hit the fan so to speak yet um and then kind of march 16th our decision was made for us and we thought it was just going to be a couple of weeks um, I think the original shelter in place was like three weeks or something. And then it just kind of, you know, the rest is history, as they say. It just got, you know, we became one of the um, countries that was hit hardest by this pandemic. I asked him about how his restaurant started cooking meals through the SF New Deal program. It was just kind of by chance. We were... Um, we were at the farmer's market and we ran into a chef, a uh, friend of ours, um, who asked what we were doing, like how we were doing. Because um, we, I'll regress a little bit, like when we, when we first closed, like we didn't um, bother opening up for takeout and things like that because we were under the impression that it was just going to be sort of like a little forced vacation and then we, you know, we would just go back to regular service. Um, after a couple weeks where it was kind of clear that this wasn't going to happen, a couple of our regulars reached out to us and said that we should really, you know, open up for takeout, that everybody's sick of sitting at home for the last two weeks. They miss, you know, they miss going out to restaurants like it would probably be a good thing business-wise to do it. So we did, so we did that. So when, we, so we were um, at the farmer's market shopping for, um, you know, to kind of start that uh, up. And we ran into a friend of ours saying that she um, is looking for chefs to basically take over the um, community kitchens here that had all shut down due to the due to the, due to the pandemic. Um, 
basically saying, you know, what your availability is, if you can, you know, cook X amount of meals every day um, for the week. So I, I said, yeah, you know, we're available seven days, like whatever's, you know, whatever's around, we'll be, we'll be happy to do it. So that, it was the last week of March um, where we started our um, first service with SF New Deal. And it was, I remember the first week was really, really tough just because we weren't set up for it staff-wise or, or other. Um, I remember staying the night in the restaurant the first night before we had food due the next day just because the, the quantities were, you know, just making food for 260 people, you know, versus like a busy night in the restaurants, like 40 people. Um, and yeah, so it just took, I mean, a little, you know, there were some growing pains, things like that, but it, eventually we got a handle on it and it's been pretty smooth sailing. Like after the first maybe couple of weeks, it's just been kind of, you know, been our thing, our, what we've been doing for the past year now almost. Fernando has continued to pay all of his fixed costs throughout the pandemic, including rent although he has tried to request a rent reduction from his landlord. We wrote them a letter like based, you know, um, and they, the, the only response that we've gotten is essentially they just cut and paste the, um, the city, um, the eviction moratorium that the city's placed, saying that you don't need to pay, pay rent, but you are, um, that those monies are owed to us over I think it's like 24 months over the X amount of terms, which is, um, you know, the frustrating part about this from just dealing with like the a policy level is we're not making any money. We're getting the money that we're supposed to be paying now waived to some later date in the future. But there's in the meantime, there's no means for us to make any money to make up for that money lost. So it's just, this is why so many places have taken the option of closing because they're doing, you know, simple arithmetic saying, okay, I have to pay 20 grand a month in fixed costs. I'm making 10. I mean, this can only last for so long because again, you, we don't know when this is going to be over. I mean, at this point we are, you know, making enough money to, you know, pay, you know, pay the staff, we'll pay Chetos, uh, you know, cover our costs, um, pay for food. Food's, food is still, food has been getting more and more expensive throughout this, which is kind of another, another thing that um, perhaps a lot of people that you don't hear when, when uh, talking to folks in the restaurant businesses, this is another one of our fixed costs that has, you know, steadily gone up. Um, because the people that are producing the food are in a similar position to the folks in the restaurant business. So they have no choice but to raise their prices because of, you know, limited, um, um, you know, they most likely had to limit their staff, which is limit their production. Also, if they're going, um, you know, I'll, I'll give one example of a, um, a farm that we used to use regularly um, who is well known for their um, asparagus. Um, they're called Zuckerman's Farm. And the last time we were at the market, we talked to our, our buddy who's always there. And he was saying, if 
um, they don't have a, a solid asparagus season this year, they're probably going to close the farm. So they were floating. So because a lot of things, um, you know, if if you're serving 100 restaurants, 30% of those are in limbo as to what's going on. Um, you know, 30% of those have closed, and the rest of them are doing some sort of limited business. It's not the type of volume they were doing pre-pandemic, so they're not buying as much stuff. So these farms, as, as a, you know, we're, we're part of this sort of supply chain, right? So the, the, farm, the farmers aren't getting the, the orders coming in. So, you know, a lot of these guys donated a bunch of food because they're, you know, this is something that they, you know, they need to think, you know, seasons in advance. They, like when seed goes into the ground, they had no idea that they were not going to be able to sell that product three months down the road, right? So, um, yeah, this is, you know, we're just sort of one of the people in the chain, in the food chain that has been affected by, you know, by this. On top of negotiating costs that won't budge in the traditional restaurant supply chain, Fernando is now learning the ropes of being on another supply chain. Communicating with both food support programs like the SF New Deal and the organizations it's working with to distribute food. When it started, we were, we were just um, doing a CBO programs, so community-based organizations. Um, they were dealing with a lot of the um, faith-based um, African-American churches like out in the Bayview area. So they um, have a lot of elderly folks that they were feeding, that are part of their congregation, that they were feeding uh, pre-pandemic. And then whoever was providing, providing that food, um, like I was saying earlier, you know, um, was not able to because of the pandemic situation. So the restaurants came in and, and kind of filled that gap. Then as that sort of, um, as sites came off of that particular program, and I'm not sure the reason why, if they, um, if they were getting food from their original people, or um, you know, a lot of this was uh, SF New Deal originally started with um, a private seed, and then over as time has gone gone by, they've um, gotten a lot more um, pr uh, private sector funding as well as now public sector funding. Um, so currently we're doing kind of, we've continued with our same uh, um, church that we've been working with since the beginning of the program. And now we're also involved in another program that's um, feeding the um, homeless folks that are living in the hotel, in the various hotels throughout the city. And basically the food requirements are similar in that they kind of want American comfort food is the, the guiding factor um, with respect to the menus. Um, the the ones that we were doing today, like you saw, we had them. Um, um, you know, everything was in a paper bag, like individually packed, individual silverware, because most people are in individual rooms. Whereas the one the meals that we do for the church, we do them for families. So we'll fill like um, you know one of these um, a foil box, like about yay big, and we we put enough food in there for a family of four. Um, yeah, those are the basically kind of the two difference, main differences between the two uh, programs, food-wise. 
Now a year in, it's a question mark whether it makes sense to try to extend a program like the SF New Deal, and whether it's something other restaurants can or should participate in. I mean, it's definitely keeping us afloat. Otherwise, we would have had, with, you know, without the income that we're getting from them, we would be at zero. So we would, you know, we have, at that point, you are hoping that your landlord helps you out in rent, and you don't owe the money that you owe during that time period you close or you incur debt in order to stay open because you're not, you know, you, you figure out, you know, we've made this amount of money over X amount of years. If we take this year off fiscal quarter wise, you know, which is basically what it's been now, it's four fis full fiscal quarters. So we can get like a, you know, good uh, snapshot of, of yearly earnings. What it looks like if, if we go back and then again, you're dealing with a lot of variables that you don't know. It's like, will the restaurant industry come back as it was pre-COVID? Like, no, you know, I, I don't know the answer to that question. A lot of people that we've talked to said, oh yeah, it'll come back gangbusters, right? Everybody's dying to go out. Um, and then I kind of see it a different way. I'm like, well, people are probably, you know, have figured things out over this amount of time. Like maybe you're a young professional working in the city who all of a sudden has saved up a bunch of money because you stop going to bars and you stop going out, meeting your friends, you know, spending your, the, you know, your um, excess income is going now to different, you know, different areas than it was before. So I don't know, like there's a lot of, just a lot of things that you can come up with as to why it, it may not go back to pre-COVID levels. Um, yeah, I don't know, like, um, we would definitely love to continue doing this, um, you know, year round if possible. And this is always one of the questions that SF New Deal asks in their, um, in the surveys they send out, like, is this something that you would do? Look, like, can you see doing this for the duration of the pandemic? Can you see doing this um, for you know, three months after the duration of the pandemic, or is this something that you would be interested in, in doing permanently? Um, and I hope most of the restaurants, again, like every restaurant's in a different situation, right? So, but I would hope that they would at least have some, um, be able to, you know, put a little bit of um, energy towards doing this. Because, you know, for us, it's, it's a lot for us because we're such a small team, but if you, if you have, you know, if you're a big restaurant with 20 cooks or something running around um, and you have, you know, 400 meals a week that you're giving to folks, you can figure things out why, okay, you have these guys that are dedicated to doing this. And I, I feel like the more um, restaurants that take part in this, the better there's a chance for, for this kind of model to kind of go, go into the future. I also asked Fernando how he feels about preparing American comfort food after years of perfecting his restaurant's California-inspired Sri Lankan fare. Um, it's enjoyable. I mean, it's it's not. Uh, I mean, it's just a, it's a different sort of um, gratification. I guess it's not like I definitely miss you know making pretty fancy, complicated food, but also making a bunch of food that you know is gonna. Um, you know, feed and nourish people that, you know, probably need it more so than my customers do, right? It's like, you know, our, our level of, we're definitely more of like food is entertainment. Um, and I think a lot of restaurants in the city are probably that same boat. It's like, 
nobody goes to a fancy restaurant be like, oh my God, I'm starving. Let's go spend 200 bucks on dinner, right? It's like, if you're, if you're starving, you go get a couple burgers from In-N-Out or something, right? So it's like, we're definitely like the food is inter as entertainment yeah. side of the spectrum. And I feel like now we're, we've definitely moved like way to the food as sustenance side of the spectrum. So there's something rewarding in that, definitely. That's Brian Fernando from 1601 Bar and Kitchen. You've been listening to Civic from the San Francisco Public Press. Let's hear more about how restaurants are figuring out their futures. Our next destination is in San Francisco's Chinatown. Yeah, so over here we're packing for our um, SF New Deal Great Plates program, which provides breakfast, lunch, and dinner every day for the seniors in the program who have uh, food insecurities. Um, so we have like a nutritious breakfast, uh, lunch. Chelsea Hung is the second generation owner of Washington Bakery and Restaurant in San Francisco's Chinatown. Her parents started the restaurant 25 years ago. Hung used to work there as a kid and wasn't ready to see the restaurant go when her parents were set to retire. So she left her job in tech in New York in 2018 to come back and take over the family business. The restaurant specializes in Hong Kong-style cuisine and pastries and basically operates within a Chinatown ecosystem. Their landlord lives in Chinatown, most of their customers live in Chinatown, and most of their workers and local vendors live in Chinatown too. As someone coming into the restaurant business from another industry, the last few years have been eye-opening for Hong, especially this last year in the pandemic. It's definitely been um, an emotional and uh, definitely an emotional roller coaster. Um, when you are in the restaurant industry, you're faced with many challenges and changes all the time. You know, after taking over the restaurant, it. I have a whole new appreciation for my parents and everything they've sacrificed to build this. Um, and I, you know, I want to be able to carry on their legacy. Um, and yeah, from, I went from being um, in a position that helped entrepreneurs um, at the tech companies I, I, I was working at to becoming an entrepreneur myself. And the whole transition has been such a huge uh, learning experience and growth experience. Um, I've definitely been challenged in so many ways that I never thought I would be and to just watch myself overcome these challenges and grow and being able to survive, especially through a pandemic. When the pandemic first hit, um, let's go into your experience. Well, well, what was the realization for you that like something bigger was going to be happening and um, you had to start thinking too about how you are going to function with the restaurant and handle, you know, payrolls for your employees? I mean, the pandemic for us, I felt like Chinatown was the first to be hit with the pandemic. I mean, even starting early January 2020, we've noticed a huge decline in um, foot traffic care. A lot of it had to do with misconceptions of the virus, um, a lot of xenophobia, um, and people just avoiding Asian communities. Um, so we, we've already noticed a huge decline then. Um, 
along with after that it's kind of near Chinese New Year and that's when normally we have the Chinese New Year parade and the fairs and the streets are blocked off and it brings in millions of people. Um, however, that year I think the attendance was like half and you know, a lot of the businesses here rely on those few weeks of Chinese New Year festivities for um, a lot of their revenue for the year. Um, so we've noticed that. And then after that, it was the shutdown. And that's when we kind of realized like, oh, this is more serious than we thought initially thought. And even with the shutdown, we, were, we thought, oh, this might just be a few weeks. Okay, we'll close, we'll close the restaurant. We want our team to be safe. We weren't sure, you know, how serious um, the situation was, but we wanted to take precautions. So we ended up closing the restaurant for about a month just due to uncertainty and not knowing um, what, what are what the future holds um so during that month we thought how are we going to survive this when we realized that this is going to be longer than a month um when we reopened we were only allowed to do takeout and during that time you know we were, we were making maybe like i don't know a hundred dollars a day not sometimes not even it was just but yeah, the first week we opened, I realized like, yep, we we can't solely just rely on takeout and that this, yeah, it just gave so much uncertainty of what we can do when we were running on just like a three, four person team from before we had about, you know, 16, 17 employees. Um, can I just ask a quick question? Well, how did you... How did you manage the relationship with the employees? I mean, are most of them, were most of them working here full time? Did they have to um, go on unemployment? Was there sort of the hope that you would rehire them? Like, how did you talk things out and have a sort of mutual understanding with each other? I mean, I think we all had a mutual understanding that, you know, a pandemic was happening and there's just a lot of uncertainty and that, you know, they knew that if we had to close the restaurant that they potentially will have to lose their job. You know, initially um, we had the idea of just rehiring everyone um, when we opened, but realizing how little business we were getting, it was pretty much impossible to rehire our whole team again. Um, so, you know, it, it's really heartbreaking. It's really heartbreaking when, you know, you can't provide for your team and you can't, pay your landlord, you can't pay your vendors, um, you, but all these bills are still around. Um, during that first month, we, the first couple months of the pandemic were really um, challenging and emotionally, financially, physically straining. Um, but I think our team was, was really understanding, you know, it's not just us, it's pretty much the whole world. Um, so yeah, many of them were, you know, collecting unemployment, um, and, you know, a lot of them chose, even when we want, reopened and, you know, wanted to rehire, a lot of them chose to stay home instead because, you know, for safety precautions. When this first order of shelter in place happened, let's just recap, you decided to shut down for a month, then you reopened for takeout, and, I mean, what was... How was that transition? Like, were you able to sort of 
you know, attract as much attention, as attract as much um, clientele, uh, you know, given the circumstances, I feel like people are really afraid at that time and um, really kind of just withdrawn. And so I'm trying to understand, um, were you trying takeout because you knew it could work or trying takeout because the city said you could try takeout? <laughs> I think more because the city said we can try takeout and we still wanted to provide for you know some of our employees and we, we still had rent to pay. So it's like, we either try to make some money or we just, you know, close and not make anything, but still have all these, you know, payments due. Can we talk a little bit about rent? Just, I mean, um, you know, there's been different orders in the city too, um, commercial eviction moratoriums in addition to um, eviction moratoriums for residents, but like, were you able to talk with your landlord about a possible rent reduction or a pause or a way to sort of streamline um, the situation so that you and the restaurant could survive, but also that your landlord wasn't going under two, being like a mom and pop landlord, essentially? Yeah, I mean, we definitely um, communicated with our landlord the situation. I mean, she also understood she's a business owner herself. Um, she, you know, we couldn't pay the first couple months because we were not making anything and she understood that, but eventually we came to negotiate um, and she reduced our, our rent um, a little bit. So we were very, very appreciative of that. Um, but, you know, it was still hard um, and it wasn't until we were able to secure a PPP loan that we were able to pay some of the rent that was due. And so um, how did you figure out then what your business model could be um, during a pandemic? Because obviously, like, you know, takeout alone wasn't going to suffice, wasn't going to suffice. Right. So, you know, we honestly had to become we've had we had to just adapt to the situation, become more innovative and kind of just navigate around um, the situation. You know, we realized that, you know, people probably aren't really going to come out these next couple months. How are we going to get the food to them then? So we started signing up for more delivery services and delivery apps. We've also started providing our own delivery as well. Um, and then we also noticed people were, um, you know, making more food at home. So we decided to, to make meal kits. Um, you know, we, a lot of our noodle soup dishes are, very popular here so we decided to make like a noodle soup kit you know separate out the soup um, have instructions of how to cook the noodles and provide the protein and vegetables and um, we started we sell a lot of wontons every day so we decided to have um, you know freshly made wontons but you know uncooked and have it frozen so that we can give it to people and they can make it um, themselves whenever they want. So we started making, you know, changing our menu essentially um, to for uh, people to have convenience to make our food at home. Um, so those were some examples of like how we were trying to innovate. Uh, we started just trying to um, be more active on social media and kind of like tell our story and promote um, 
our new kits and promote um, you know new menu items that we've had um, and then down the line um, we you know we had the opportunity to join SF New Deal and that kind of what changed um, I guess the direction we were going to you know be able, essentially be able to keep our doors open can you talk about like how did you first find out about this program called the SF New Deal and how was it framed to you? Um, so yeah, we found out about SF New Deal um, since someone from the program reached out to us. I, they, at the time, they were looking for more um, Chinese restaurants to provide for their um, Asian seniors who wanted more Asian food. Um, Luckily, a mutual friend of ours recommended us, and uh, yeah, so I talked to one of the team members there, and we got set up and, you know, started the program, and we are just so grateful that we were able to be a part of this program, because honestly, I wouldn't even know how we would survive those, you know, months of just takeout. Talk a little bit about, so now you essentially have this sort of like bifurcated business model or not even bifurcated, but like multifaceted business model where, you know, now we're sitting inside the restaurants, people can come in, I see a parklet outside, um, you have these meal kits, you're also participating in this program, the SF New Deal. Um, like how much of a percentage or portion of the SF New Deal is your current business right now? And how much was it like, like how much was it when you first started the SF New Deal and how much is it now? Yeah, I mean, the first, I mean, I would say the first three to four months that we joined SF New Deal, that was probably like 60 or 70% of our revenue. So it also allowed us to rehire some of our old employees back as well. Um, but then it allowed us to, you know, have more consistent revenue so that we can, you know, purchase more um, PPE um, and pay our vendors and rent and employees. Um, so it really helped us in that way, as well as doing something good for the community and providing um, delicious food for these seniors. Um, yeah, so in the beginning, it was about, yeah, uh, six, like 60 to 70 percent. Um, now that, you know, after we invested into our outdoor dining platform and then essentially indoor dining was open for a little bit and then shut down again. Um, and then we've also joined another meal program called Feed and Fuel Chinatown. Um, now, currently, I would say makes up around 40 percent, 40 to 50 percent of revenue. So still a huge chunk. But now that we have a few other sources of revenue. Um, we don't have to just rely solely on this program, but it's still very much needed. What are your thoughts about whether this kind of program can be embedded in the business model of restaurants on a broader level? Like, because um, right now it is kind of like a solution that came about during the pandemic, but food insecurity has existed even before the pandemic. Um, and I'm just wondering for you as a restaurant owner, as someone who has been involved with the program, um, yes, how do you manage or how do you imagine it becoming 
more embedded? Do you imagine it becoming more embedded? Like what are sort of the costs and benefits in your mind? Yeah, I mean, I really do hope that this program can be long-term or permanently. Um, you know, it is a really good program to help restaurants and people with food insecurities. How far in advance do you typically know that you're gonna stay on the SF New Deal? Because it seems like a program that, you know, itself was... So from my understanding, the SF New Deal was started as a sort of temporary solution, but it's been, you know, staying, you know, adding more time. And so how far in advance do you typically know that you have like a few more weeks or a few more months to work with the program? We normally find out like a few days before the program is scheduled to end. Um, but, you know, it, they're also waiting for city approval and for city funding. Um, so as soon as they get either the approval and funding, then that's when they let us know. Hung feels lucky that they were able to get on board with different food support programs and that they were able to negotiate their rent with their landlord. But she has no doubt that the pandemic has shifted the industry for good and that the road to recovery is rough for a lot of businesses. Honestly, I don't think things will ever go back to, you know, pre-COVID. Um, that's just the situation that it is now. People, you know, businesses and people just kind of need to adapt to this new lifestyle of, you know, being... Um, innovative and adapting to these times. It's also a lot of, you know, a lot, some of the restaurant, or at least for us, we rely on a lot of um, office people for work and people are working in financial district. A lot of people are going to be working from home for a long time or permanently. Um, also, people probably won't feel comfortable fully um, going out uh, for a while, you know, it's going to take time for people to feel comfortable again and, um, you know, to kind of have that lifestyle like they did before. And I mean, like also for us, we're, we probably won't have like tables, you know, multiple tables, like really close to each other anymore for a long time. Um, so in that sense, we're not going to be able to turn around um, as many tables as we did before. Um, you know, we, and I also say that it's going to take years to recover because a lot of these businesses were probably, you know, losing money um, for over a year. You know, that's going to take time to recover and to kind of, you know, restart their business again. Um, a lot of a lot of restaurants like business models changed so um, that's why I also mentioned like things are just going to be different but you know there, there's hope you know people eventually come back out to eat and you know people have to buy food so you know we hope that um, things will actually even be better than before even pre-COVID um, when things start to normalize. Thank you so much. Is there anything else you want to add that I didn't ask that you think is relevant or? Um, yeah, I just want to end this by saying to support your local and small businesses. It definitely means more 
to them than you know you think and for everyone just to be kind to one another because everyone's going through their own struggles um, during, the situ during this pandemic and situation. That was Chelsea Hung, owner of Washington Bakery and Restaurant. I'll be back in the next episode to bring you a conversation with one of the founders of the SF New Deal, one of the programs trying to save restaurants and provide food security at the same time. I'm Sonia Paul, and you've been listening to Civic. 